Ever wonder what other people are thinking? Welcome to Shooting the Shish Kebab, a podcast where I share a partially researched version of what's been bouncing around in my head. From religion and politics to hobbies and weed, nothing is off limits. So what do you say? For God, country, and all of humanity, let's get after it. Hey friends, welcome into another episode of Shooting the Shish Kebab. I am your host, Lance Skiles, as always, and this time we're going to be talking about farming, and specifically the death of the family farm, why that's happening, why you should care, and how it might have repercussions across our greater world. Now, I have to let you know up front that I'm biased towards this conversation because I actually grew up on a farm in Indiana and thought that's what I was going to do for a lot of my life. My my dad is still a farmer. My brother is still a farmer. And I started working on their farm at 10 or 12 years old and at 18 years old before I left home, bought a piece of land, started my own business, still own the business to this day some 12 years later. And obviously that did not end up being my life. I am one of them who left the family farm, moved to Southern California, went to college, and now seemingly will never go back, even though I'm still involved. And as we have this conversation, you'll see that that's a trend that plays in. But I think even more important, the death of the family farm is telling us something important about what's happening in our world and in our country. It's sort of a a red light flashing of not just what's happening in family farms, but what's been happening throughout our economy for years and years. And I think that you'll see some parallels and hopefully find this conversation interesting as we talk through. And I have to say this this conversation was interesting for me as well as I researched it because leading up to this, I kind of had a feeling of what was wrong in family farms and the pain that people were feeling and and the the shrinking of my small community of, you know, two or three thousand people, the town that I grew up in in rural Indiana. But I didn't completely understand all the ins and outs of what was happening. And I have to also caveat that this conversation does not go into the deepest end of exactly what's happening. My goal with these are to try to always keep them under 30 minutes, to be a conversation that's super digestible. And this thing is far beyond a 30-minute conversation. And so there's lots of pieces that I'll leave out. I'm sure if people listen to this and they know more about farming or they're from that community, they'll have ideas and thoughts of things that I didn't say. It's not because I don't agree with you. It's just because I'm trying to hit some of the high points here. So as I started researching, one of the first things that jumped out to me is how much life has changed in the U.S., specifically as it relates to farms, in the last 90, I guess, 90 years, according to this research. I don't know what the research says today. But according to the research I found, and there's a couple things I'll be referencing, and I'll put them in the show notes. The research that I found is that in the year 1900, 40% of the population in the U.S. lived on family farms. Almost half of the U.S. lived on a family farm. By 1990, 2% of the population, 2% of the population lived on family farms. So what exactly changed? Well, something clearly did. And part of this is a social change. The same thing that I did of leaving and going to college, you know, a lot of people started to do that. As the world got smaller, I guess, because of, of travel and television and all of these things, a lot of kids who otherwise were just staying on the farm decided to leave and to go to college. And that was a really integral part of the successful family business because all of those kids, like myself, represented either free or really cheap labor for the first 
15 years of our lives or sometimes beyond. I think my dad worked well beyond the, his first 15 years for free. Um, thankfully, my parents were, were, were pretty generous and they did start paying me, I think, when I was sometime in my teens. But it, it is, for the, so the smaller family farms especially, a really integral part of kind of what helps them stay alive. But I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I want to talk more about the economic side. So the first big change that really happened in family farming happened in the 1920s and 30s. And I'm sure that the first thing that comes to mind is the Great Depression. If so, you're exactly right. Because the Depression did a couple of things to farmers. First, it completely destroyed sort of the, the capital structure of how farming worked. And for the first time in a long time, maybe ever, in the United States at least, Farmers were were left in a situation where prices were actually below their costs. And if you know anything about business, you know that you can't keep going very long if prices below cost. But what it did that was maybe even more salient that has lasted for far beyond the Great Depression was it injected a level of fear that stuck with a lot of that generation for the rest of their lives. And you kind of hear that come up as I talk about my grandfather's story, but that that played a pretty important role in how farming essentially evolved over the next several decades. So in 1933, in the middle of the Great Depression, FDR is president. He's trying to find ways through you know, the New Deal to push back. And part of that was the Farm Bill that was passed. And the Farm Bill did a couple of really important things for farmers. It provided commodity loans. So for the first time, they could get a loan and use their commodities as collateral. And this allowed them to hold, you know, whether it was a corn or a soybean, whatever it was, to hold it for several months at a time and not sell it essentially until the price went up. And it also provided for some subsidies that went directly to the farmers. And this stabilized prices. This was part of sort of the whole New Deal ethos that really made a difference. And farmers bounced back. Then World War II hits in the 40s. Things are good. The farm bill is working. Every five years, this farm bill continues to be renewed. And then we get through World War II and we get to the mid-century and suddenly things begin to change again. Um, the farm bills had not changed that much. There were some subsidies, the loan program was still there, but in the late 40s and 50s and beyond, we saw technology begin to change the world of farming in pretty significant ways. And what that meant was suddenly the technology allowed farmers to become exponentially more productive, which then created a scenario where ding ding ding, price is lower than cost. And we're in the same predicament that they were in 25 years earlier. But the difference is the farm bill isn't really working anymore. Yes, there's some subsidies still coming out, but there's not nearly enough. And a lot of those subsidies are starting to get funneled to people who are more powerful, essentially. And the nature of the business is also changing with this. Not only is technology changing and making uh, production much, much higher than demand, but with changing technology, the assets behind those technology become exponentially more expensive. Buying tractors and buying, you know, silos to store your grain, whatever it was, is suddenly becoming much more expensive. And as we get into the 1950s and 60s, the only way that a farmer is able to survive is no longer to sort of play it safe and be a small business and rely sort of on the farm bill. Instead, the farmer is now forced to start using more leverage. And if, if you're not a business person, no problem. Leverage is essentially debt. So they're leveraging up, they're going into more debt, and that's just what it takes because it's a capital intensive business. You have to have cash flow and you have to be able to sort of lever up. But the other thing that began to happen during this time 
is sort of the classic business example is when margins get tight, what you know is to make money, you need scale because scale allows you to have more bargaining power and it allows you to drive down prices of your costs so you can deal with the thinner margins. And so what happened was larger farmers and even large conglomerates of farmers began to get together and they began to join processing, food processing companies. And this is the beginning of where we start to see big food processing companies moving into the farming space. And you'll hear much more about this. And if you think about who the main producers of a lot of your food are today, they're not small farmers, they're processing groups. And processing groups um, such as meat packers or large chemical companies, those companies quickly in the 50s and 60s began to turn to very powerful lobbying groups. And so you start to see these pictures in the 50s and 60s of smaller people are being pushed out, leverage is required, larger farmers are starting to join up with food processors, and these food processors are joining these conglomerates, and powerful lobbying groups are being set up. And all of this sort of is seen best in the 1970s under an agriculture secretary named Earl Butts. Fun name. So Earl Butts is actually the ag secretary in the mid-70s under Richard Nixon, and he has this really aggressive attitude. He has a very aggressive adapt-or-die attitude. He says, we're going to just plant as many crops as we can throughout the entire Midwest, throughout the entire breadbasket, and you will either adapt as a small farmer and you'll figure it out, or you will die. And his policies looked mostly to these large conglomerates, the chemical companies, the packing plants, big businesses, not to small families. Because he was looking for the efficiencies, he wanted to try to drive down prices, and he wasn't particularly concerned with either the way his rhetoric came out or the way he helped craft farm bills to make sure that family farms didn't die. And that trend continued right up through the 80s and 90s. We continue to see consolidation, throw in NAFTA. That's a whole nother conversation. And finally, it really culminated in 2002 when the 2002 Farm Bill came out. And I'm pretty sure this quote is directly from the 2002 Farm Bill. I could be wrong. I could not track down exactly where the quote came from. But the, the, the markers that I, I saw, I'm pretty sure this came from the actual Farm Bill. This is the same thing. that They started in 1933. They renew it every five years. The 2002 version said this, and I quote, we are now being repositioned. So the quote starts at reposition. We have now been repositioned as U.S. agribusiness has now become the largest corporate welfare recipient in America. We have now repositioned U.S. agribusiness as America's largest corporate welfare recipient. So essentially what they're saying is, for whatever reason, this business model isn't working. There's obviously structural things at play here. And we sort of just went through a really fast history of what some of those structural things have been. And so our answer to this is to turn farming into some sort of corporate welfare state or welfare recipient. But the problem is a lot of that welfare isn't actually still going to family farms. A great example of this is in the mid-2000s when suddenly there was an ethanol mandate where ethanol is made from corn. And if you don't know this, 10% of your gasoline every time you fill up at the pump is actually ethanol. It's made from corn. It doesn't come from oil. And it's mandated by law that 10% has to be ethanol. And so because of that, there was a higher demand for corn production, 
but in part because there was government subsidies that helped ethanol producers build ethanol plants to be able to make ethanol from farmer corn. That money was not necessarily going to farmers. Maybe it was through the marketing if you hedged your commodities properly, but most of it was staying with the owners of those plants. So as I thought about this and I sort of had done the research, I realized that this narrative of the last, I guess, almost 100 years, 90 years, really matches up almost perfectly with my farming narrative. My grandpa started farming uh, in the late 30s, early 40s. He was born in the late 20s, definitely lived through the Great Depression, definitely had that, that scar of fear that never, ever, ever left him because of the Great Depression. Started farming in the early 40s, worked really, 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 really hard, grew his farm, made something of himself, continued to grow, but grow slowly. And in part, he grew slowly because he had that fear from the depression and that fear of having to lever up to take on debt. This was especially true in the 50s and 60s and 70s when the world was rapidly changing for farmers. And he still had the mindset of how it was working in the 30s and 40s, coupled with the fear of the Great Depression, and was unwilling to lever up, and was unwilling to grow even when there was opportunity, if it pushed him beyond his comfort zone. Which, now in hindsight, is like, man, you had opportunity you should have pushed, but if I would have lived through the Great Depression, it's completely understandable that he had that attitude. Not crazy at all. So then in this time frame, 60s, 70s, my dad enters the picture. He's the son. He's working hard for free. He's help, keep, helping keep the business strong and growing, but he doesn't have the depression fear. And he clearly begins to understand, especially during the 70s, as this Butts character comes into play, that farming is now a game that is all about scale and leverage. And to be successful for the next few decades, you are going to have to get massive scale, which means grow really quickly. And you're going to have to use significant leverage to do it because that the joke is that farmers live poor and die rich because most of their life, they're in a ton of debt and have very little cash. But by the end, the hope is they own a lot of assets to hand on to somebody. And so then my dad, without this fear and with this understanding of exactly how it's going to look, if you're going to scale in farming, makes a calculated decision in the mid nineties. He sees there's a, a window of opportunity to take on significant leverage, to build out his livestock operation. He knows that there's going to be high risk for approximately two to three years to pay down some of the principal on the debt. And then after that two to three years, by the late 90s, he's going to be in a, a, an excellent position to essentially capture the 2000s. That was the plan. The only problem is the ground shifted significantly in this market. Within a few months of him levering up like this, the entire livestock market changed violently, and with it, so did his financial position. And to some extent, the rest is history since that, that time in the mid-90s. But as I thought about this, I thought, well, what, what, what were his choices? You know, it's easy to say, man, you took too much risk, you should have played it safer, but what are the choices? And the handwriting was on the wall that if you were not someone willing to lever up and to take the risk... You as a farmer and your heritage after you, we're going to die by a thousand cuts. Yes, you may not go broke all in a year because you took too much risk, but you would certainly die by a thousand cuts. And so he took the risk. 
And nine times out of 10, probably would have been fine. But he happened to get unlucky that one time and got lambasted. And this, for me, as I looked at, again, this larger narrative arc of family farming in the U.S., this is when, for our family, everything changed. Because in, 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 in the, the late 90s, we transitioned. We transitioned from being the family who traditionally had been, for the last 20, 30 years, been the larger farm. We'd been buying up the smaller surviving farms as they went broke. We were getting relatively you know, cheap assets or undervalued assets in some cases. And now all of a sudden we had switched. We had become that struggling farm that now had to begin liquidating assets, even if it wasn't at a market high, selling farm, selling equipment, and selling it to other larger farms and neighbors and conglomerates that were picking it up for cheaper like we had been doing five or 10 years before. And that's essentially where we stand now, 15 years later. Still an intense desire to grow. Still enough there to provide livelihood for a few people in my family. But nothing has changed. For them to be able to grow, it requires massive investments, massive amounts of debt, and oftentimes buying assets such as land that simply won't cash flow. That we're in a situation now with this finite finite asset, which is the land, that essentially to get it, you have to pay a lot more than will cash flow, which means... Only the people who have a lot of dry powder, have cash on the sidelines, can actually step in and do it, which means the big people are getting bigger and the small people continue to get pushed to the edges. And in my family, like in so many other family farms, this is translated to people either leaving the farm altogether for a different job because there simply isn't enough money in farming, or people in my family who've had to get a side job or a second job or start another small business or do this or that just to try to increase cash flow enough to keep going. This is not a novel story. This is my story. This is my family's story. But as you heard, this is this is the arc of the whole thing. And what we haven't even really talked about, other than the understanding that, you know, these conglomerates have have really moved in and taken a lot from the smaller families, is exactly what that's looked like. And so I'm going to move through this as quickly as I can. Because I think you could do a really robust study specifically in this area of sort of big business and, and how the impact that big business has made in the farming community and especially in the family farming community. But I'm just going to hit a couple of high points that came to mind. And I did a bit of research for this and you'll find a lot more if you look deeper. But one, one thing that came to mind is 25 years ago, so mid-90s, you could have bought a brand new combine harvester, John Deere brand combine harvester. This is the thing that goes through the field and picks the corn and, and, and cuts the beans for less than $100,000. It would have been around there. I think, I, I can't remember the numbers. I couldn't find a number exactly, but I, I know that my family bought a 9,600 combine and, and they paid less than 100000 Now, if you go buy a brand new John Deere combine, you're anywhere between five hundred dollars and $600,000. And if you look back over the last 25 years, inflation averaged about 2.2%. But for easy figuring, I said, what if inflation was 3% over the last 25 years? That means that inflationary costs should have driven up the cost of this combine about 109%, which is roughly double. So let's say you know $200,000 is what that combine should cost now. Instead, that combine went up 500%. 500%. 6x the cost of that combine. 
The other thing is not just large companies like machinery companies, but large companies like Monsanto and DuPont, probably companies you've all heard of, even if you know nothing about farming. But these companies literally control everything that happens on family farms and large farms in the Midwest. A great example of this is Roundup. You know, many people hate Roundup, and I fully understand that, but many farmers are reliant on it because many of the crops we plant are resistant to Roundup, which means Roundup is the only cost-effective way to control weeds, especially on large farms, which means that Monsanto has you by the neck because they require you to buy and use their Roundup. They also require you to buy and use seed that has been modified to be resistant to their Roundup, which they are also gaining a profit from. There's no way out. Even the smaller seed companies still have to use at least the technology that's in the Monsanto seed and DuPont holds similar technologies in other ways. And for farmers who want a way out of this, sure, there's other types of seed. Sure, you don't have to plant the genetically modified seed or the Roundup Ready seed. Yeah, there's plenty of other options. But the problem is margins are razor thin in this business. Which means if you plant an inferior seed to all of your competition, you will not make money. Because the market on the Chicago Board of Trade has equalized to a point where they accept or they expect farmers to raise a certain yield of their crop, and that expectation is based on planting genetically modified seeds, which are much, 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 much better, in productivity at least, than the non-modified seeds. Which means, if you plant non-modified seeds, you will be planting something that gives you between half and three quarters of the yield on your plants, but selling it for the same price as your competitors who are getting two times or one and a half times the yield. It's impossible to do. What's worse is that even the few bright spots of the startups that have done well in the farming community have also fallen prey to this. Great example. A company called Precision Planting. Started by a farmer in the mid-90s. He was really interested in how to make planting better. And he tinkered with his planter, and then he tinkered with neighbor's planters, and everyone realized this guy's a master tinkerer, and this is some good stuff, and it's making planting better. And by, gosh, the mid-2000s, this is a pretty widely accepted technology that it's good and that you should be using it. And this guy's making a lot of money, but farmers are largely happy because not only is it making it better, but he's helping turn their whole machine into sort of a smart machine with auto steer that's connected to a satellite and with you know a planter that has a radar that's telling you exactly how much seed went where and 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 why it did that and what type of land that was and all these types of things and they're collecting massive amounts of data which makes you a little nervous especially if you're a farmer and you're a more conservative person it makes you a little nervous but then guess what happened in 2015 in 2015 Monsanto bought precision planting now i can't blame the precision planting owner. They threw a truckload of money at this guy. I would have taken it too. But what that did is that meant this Monsanto company that already has so much power over Roundup and seed technology and all these things compared to little farmers like my family. Now they own all of our data about how we plant and where we plant and why we plant and how our seeds did and what the yield was and all of that. 
And in full disclosure, Monsanto doesn't own that arm of the company anymore. They sold it to another company called Agco, which is a large producer of tractors and equipment and things like that, who are going to also use that data for very similar reasons. Again, another example of sort of this hostage situation where farmers absolutely need this technology, need this seed, need these chemicals to survive, and they have zero leverage to make another choice, but are also getting absolutely used by many of these companies. And we're not even talking about the large processing companies, the food processing companies, right? I mean, think about meat packing plants. No longer does a meat packing plant pack meat. Now they own the livestock and they own the entire supply chain. And oftentimes they do it where they'll turn a livestock farmer into an employee, but still make them pay the cost to put up the assets to raise the livestock. But then they still own the livestock. So overall, there has been this massive shift taking place. A shift that really has seen farmers of all sizes, but predominantly smaller farmers and family farmers, be pushed to the edges as larger companies have gained more power by buying up cheap assets over the last several decades and then have essentially made themselves essential, taking away all leverage and all power from the smaller farmer. Now, what's this mean in today's world? Well, we're in the middle of COVID-19. I'm recording this in May of 2020. COVID-19 is ripping through our country. Thankfully, it's starting to slow down now. But this also comes on the heels of a trade war with China that we've been in for years and years. And those two things are, again, decimating farmers. The trade war has essentially caused China to stop buying soybeans, which means that 30% of the soybeans we were producing were being sent to China, which no longer are being sent to China, which means soybean prices go down by at least 20%, which means ding, 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 prices are below costs. Then you bring in COVID-19, oil prices plummet. Remember, corn goes into ethanol. Ethanol is connected to oil prices because it goes into fuel. Oil prices go down, ding, ding, ding. Corn prices plummet. Price is now, again, below cost. Even some farming that I know less about, like dairy farmers. Broken supply chains have caused them to not be able to ship meat and milk and all of these things. And even though they have plenty of supply, they can't get it to stores because of the broken supply chain. And again, price is below cost. Now, as a farmer, thankfully... The government has been offering record-breaking subsidies for the last two and a half years. If you thought the 2002 Farm Bill turned farming into a large corporate welfare recipient, it's been put to shame in the last few years, at least for the smaller farmers, which is good because it's helped keep smaller farmers like myself, like my parents, like my brother in business, and we're grateful for that. But what it has failed to do is deal with the root issue of what's actually going on here. Because what's actually going on here is a broken system that has not been dealt with. And continuing to throw money at the same crappy broken system isn't solving anyone's problems. And more than likely, after the 
the money from the government te- dries up in a year and two years, we'll be left in the same situation where prices are below costs and small farmers are forced to liqu- liquidate, selling assets that are undervalued, and large conglomerates will buy them at a discount. And the trend continues. But as we finish, I want to just finish with this question. And the question is, is all this good or bad? I'm a small farmer. I'm incredibly biased. But in the larger land of capitalism and economics, is this good or bad? The honest answer is, I don't know. I think from a harsh economic capitalistic standpoint, it could be argued as being good. Because from a high level, this this market is becoming more efficient. This market is absolutely becoming more efficient. There is less waste in the supply chain now than there was when you had a million family farms. But I have my doubts of whether or not that efficiency will actually trickle down to consumers. Because what we've traditionally seen in this country as of late is that the efficiencies have stayed in those companies that found those efficiencies and have not trickled down to the end consumer. But even if those efficiencies do trickle down, I almost guarantee that they will not be experienced by the family farmer. Instead, they will turn into an increase in overall inequality, the continued destruction of rural farm communities, and the continued hardship of families like mine. So, is it good or bad? Well, that's a question that we all have to answer. And I think as a country, it's a question that we need to deal with as we move forward and think about what legislation should look like in the next five and 10 years. So on that happy note, I want to say thanks again for tuning in. Would love to hear your thoughts. Leave a comment, leave a review. Would love to continue the conversation further. And hopefully this has been helpful and understanding what's happening with the family farm and why it's dying in the U.S.